The golden rule goes a long way. Jesus Christ himself put his stamp on the golden rule as a summary of all of the instruction in the law about how to love our neighbor as ourself. I've been around for a little while, and I've heard, unfortunately, some subversions of the golden rule, one of which I've come across a couple of times in the world we live in is, do unto others before they do unto you. I don't know if you've ever heard that subversion of the golden rule. You could loosely translate that as, get them before they get you. And that's what we're going to see in our text today in the opening verses of Mark chapter 14. Those who were not living according to the golden rule, but those who were living according to the subversion of the golden rule, do unto others before they do unto you, get them before they get you. This is a rule of fear, not a rule of faith. It's a fear of what other people can do to us, seeing other people as a threat to our position, to our power, to our influence, to our respect. And when we view others out of fear for the harm that they could do to us, then we do not live according to the golden rule. But when we live in a life of faith, where we trust in God to be the one who is going to protect us, so that we do not fear what others are going to do to us, not viewing others as a threat to us, but instead recognizing that we are here as servants to those who are around us, then we can obey the golden rule. And so you need to be asking yourself on a regular basis, am I living in fear of what people can do to me, or am I living in faith, trusting in God, who is my defender, who is my shield, who is the one who is going to vindicate me and make me stand in his presence blameless and with great joy? Two different mindsets two different ways of life, two different ways of treating other people around us. It comes from a heart of fear or a heart of faith in God. We come to another turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14 starts the climax, the final section of Mark's Gospel. In the previous chapters, we saw Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, his public teaching, his confrontation with the leaders in Jerusalem, chapters 11 and 12, And then in chapter 13, we saw how the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to the inner circle of disciples what was to come, how they were to live in expectation of the end of the age, the coming of Christ in his kingdom and in his glory, and the difficulties that we were going to experience in the time leading up to Christ's coming. And so all that has been in the Gospel of Mark so far has been leading up to chapters 14 through 16, where we have the passion of the Christ, that is, his suffering, his arrest, his trial, his death, and then finally, his resurrection. As it says there in chapter 14, verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. That's the marker that we are entering into the final act of this drama in Mark's gospel. This is the climax of the book, We're coming up on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and we'll be preaching from the Gospel of Mark the Good Friday passage and the Easter Sunday passage in God's good providence. Now, in these first 11 verses of chapter 14, you're going to see a great contrast. As you see our title here for this morning's message, Love versus Hate, you're going to see love sandwiched in between hate. The first two verses the hatred of the scribes and the high priests for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
where they do unto others before they can do unto you. And then in the middle of the hatred of the scribes and the chief priest and Judas's betrayal in verses 10 through 11, we have the love where Jesus is anointed at Bethany, as you see in your text. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. Our outline for this morning is going to follow this sandwich of hatred around the love that is set in sharp contrast. We have selfish hatred versus the giving love in verses 3 through 9. Verses 1 and 2. As I read, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, the desire to destroy Jesus, and that was the word that was used, goes all the way back to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. It didn't take the Jewish leaders very long to figure out that Jesus was a threat, as they perceived him, to their position, to their leadership, to their role as the not only spiritual leaders of the people, but also the political leaders of the people of Israel. This is a theocracy. There's no separation of church and state in Israel. But the Roman government allowed the Jews a measure of self-rule, and that self-rule was carried out by the religious leaders of the people of Israel. And so Jesus, when he came, and he was teaching differently than the way that they taught, and he was pointing out many of their errors and their hypocrisy, they perceived him as a threat, and they thought, we have to destroy him, otherwise we're going to lose the heart of the people. We're going to lose the place of respect and honor and influence that we enjoy. They used the excuse that he was a blasphemer, that he was a Sabbath breaker, but really from the beginning it was clear that their animosity towards Jesus stemmed from the fact that he was a threat to what they held dear. You have a choice in life. You can either pursue truth or you can pursue power. One way that we pursue power is through money. Another way that we pursue power is through respect and influence. And if you are pursuing power by any means, if that becomes your God, well then everyone around you is a threat. And it's a matter of climbing up and getting them before they get you. Maintaining what you have, gaining more than what you have. There's only so much power and money in the world and you have to be careful that you don't become the type of person that is pursuing power. Power in your marriage relationship, power in your family, power in the church. There's many ways and in many relationships that the desire for power becomes evident. Or you can choose to pursue truth. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ was pursuing. He came here to speak the truth, to teach the truth. He was not seeking power. But those who are in the world and of the world, they take steps to eliminate any threat to their power in a satanic game of thrones. Satan worships power. And those who follow the teaching of Jesus reject that satanic pursuit of power. But those who are deceived and misled by the devil with his lies are misled by their lust for power, control. This fear of Jesus led them also to fear the people. You see that in the verse. They're looking for how they can secretly arrest him and kill him. 
but they want to be careful not to do it in a way that is going to cause an uproar among the people. So they feared Jesus and they feared the people. And everything that they're doing is to protect their position of power and influence. Let us repent of any such sin within our hearts. Unless we repent of the will to power, it is impossible to follow Christ. If we seek power to protect ourselves from other sinners, we will be overcome by evil. But if we trust in God to protect us and to vindicate us, as Jesus did, then we will not be overcome by evil, but we will overcome evil with good. We can love our enemies and do good to them if we trust in God and not in our own power. Christ laid aside his power. He laid aside his privilege. He suffered for others. And that's the life that he calls us to. Righteous suffering. You can either be the righteous sufferer or the wicked oppressor. We see the wicked oppressors here in verses 1 and 2. Notice the language. They were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now that's kind of a weak translation. In the Greek, it's actually much more emphasized that they are seeking not just by stealth, but by deceit, by lies, by strategies that are unethical. And when it says arrest him, it's not just arrest, but it's to seize, to capture. This is not well-meaning government authorities. These are people who are abusing their position and power, and they know it. And they're calculating it. And they're keeping state secrets, not for the good of the people, but for the good of themselves. This is about oppression and judicial murder. And I'm not afraid to say it. That's what the scripture says. Now, raises the question, who watches the watchman? These Jewish leaders were supposed to be the ones who were the judges. They were the ones who were supposed to be enforcing God's law, God's rules. They were the nation of God on the earth that had been entrusted with the Mosaic law. And here they are, the watchmen, plotting how to kill an innocent man through deceit. Who watches the watchman? Well, if you're not a theist, the answer is no one. But thank God, he watches the watchman. He writes it down in his book. They get away with nothing. No human government official, no matter how deceitful, no matter how sneaky, is getting away with anything. God sees every motive of the heart. He hears every conversation behind closed doors. And he is the judge that all men will give account to. Human government is a necessary evil, but when the power of the sword is given to sinful people, don't be surprised if they use it selfishly. Now that is not to say that by God's providence they don't do what God has appointed them to do, for they do. And we're thankful for human government. It is necessary. They exist to punish evildoers, and these evil judges who used their power to kill Jesus also punished wrongdoers. They kept peace, order, law within their society. And they were acting as servants of God and carrying out that task. But don't think that human government is only doing its job. They will also use the power that God has entrusted them with for evil. It happened in the Jewish nation. It happened in the Gentile nations. It happens in every nation. Don't expect government to not be oppressive and selfish. 
Now, you see here that the people are a check on the power of the authorities. They have to be careful how they carry out their injustice so that they don't lose the heart of the people, that they don't cause a riot among the people. But that's why our state secrets come in. Not all state secrets are designed for your protection. Much state secrets are designed for the protection of the evil and the oppression that's going on behind the scenes, of this satanic game of thrones. Now, notice that the sentence against Jesus is determined before the trial. They're going to arrest him and kill him. Already decided. He's going to die. No matter what happens at the trial, no matter what the witnesses say, no matter what the evidence is, the outcome is determined before the trial. And don't think that doesn't happen today. As I was reading Aesop's fables this week with my children, I came across one that was very appropriate to our text here today. It's called The Cat and the Rooster. And I can't say it any better than it's written, so I'm going to read it. Not long. A cat caught a rooster and pondered how he might find a reasonable excuse for eating him. He accused him of being a nuisance to men by crowing in the nighttime and not permitting them to sleep. The rooster defended himself by saying that he did this for the benefit of man, that they might rise in time for their labors. The cat replied, Although you abound in specious apologies, I shall not remain supperless. And he made a meal of him. Justice. That's the justice of those who are just seeking an excuse to condemn those that they want to condemn. That's what we see on display in the life of Jesus. Now, notice that they feared doing it during the feast, and yet, by God's plan, by God's orchestration, their malice and Judas' treachery come together so that Jesus will die during the feast because God had ordained that the Son of God would die as the Passover lamb. And so he has to die during the Passover. And so while they feared it, God provides them the opportunity to carry out their plan, arresting Jesus in secret, away from the crowds, because Judas provides them the opportunity. That's what we see in verses 10 and 11. So as we look at the selfish hatred, we not only have verses 1 and 2, but we also have verses 10 and 11, where Judas is the answer to their problem. Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Have you ever wondered why Judas betrayed Jesus? The Bible doesn't seem to show much interest in Judas's motivation, although Commentators have had a lot of interest in Judas's motivations, and there's been lots of theories that have been floated as to why Judas betrayed Christ. But to Mark, he was just a traitor. And Mark wasn't really very interested in Judas's person. He wasn't really very interested in Judas's motives. One thing we do know that Scripture tells us is that his motives were satanic. Luke chapter 22, verse 3 says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. So Judas was not just demon-possessed. He was Satan-possessed. His motivation for this is coming from the prince of darkness himself. Did he do it for the money? Judas did ask for money. We're told about that in Matthew chapter 26, verse 15. But that doesn't seem to be his prime motive 30 pieces of silver. 
Whatever his motive was, it was from Satan and it was divinely appointed so that Jesus would be betrayed and crucified during the Passover this year, this time, this place, this day, all according to the predetermined plan of God, working through the malice of the chief priests and the scribes, working through the betrayal of Judas. And why did God ordain that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend, someone that Jesus always treated with love and respect as a friend. Well, I think it's so that we can know that our Lord has gone through what we go through. You can expect to be betrayed by people that you have loved, by people that you have served. Maybe not as darkly and as bitterly as Judas betrayed Christ, but we do face betrayal in life. And Jesus warned us about this back in chapter 13. You look at chapter 13, verse 9. And we were told that we need to be on our guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And you come down to verse 12 and you see that brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them be put to death. And so God ordained that if Christians were going to be betrayed by those that they loved, that Jesus also would be betrayed by one that he loved so that he is a compassionate high priest who understands what we go through. God ordained tremendous suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't think of mental suffering that is worse than betrayal. Notice the gladness of the chief priests Judas comes to them and he gives them what they wanted, a way to arrest Jesus that is not going to lead to a riot. When they heard it, they were glad. This was more than they could have anticipated, more than they could have expected, that one of Jesus' own disciples would become an informer against him and would give them the opportunity to put him to death. What a bitter joy is in the heart of the wicked. Joy in betrayal. Joy in the opportunity to kill. Joy in the abuse of power. Joy in hating God's Son. What a wicked joy. You know, as we think about Judas and these chief priests, we have to recognize it's not enough to be against hatred in general or conceptually as many people want to virtue signal. Hating evil in society or in others is not hating evil. You must hate it in yourself. You must root out your own fear of man, your own desire to protect yourself and do unto others before they do unto you. You must learn how to trust in God or you will be overcome by the deceitfulness of sin. And you will mistreat others. You will hate others. And you will justify it to yourself the way that these men justified it to themselves as self-defense. Being against the hatred of the past, that's not virtue. The virtuous man stands against the sin in his own heart and overcomes his own temptations. Not as some kind of social justice warrior, but as a man who fears God. And loves others even at his own expense. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so, 
As we do that, we're going to learn how to love our neighbor and love one another. That's where we're going. We started off with the hate, but we're not going to end there. We're going to look at what is between the hatred of the chief priests and the betrayer with the love, the extravagant love, the genuine love, the giving love of this unnamed woman in verses 3 through 9. Your reaction to the Lord Jesus Christ tells God everything he needs to know about you. If you hate him, God knows who you are and what you are. If you love him, God knows who you are and what you are. Your reaction to Jesus Christ tells God everything he needs to know about you. Let's read verses 3 through 9. While he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus is at Bethany. We're told that he is at the house of Simon the leper. This is the only reference we have in the Bible to Simon the leper. Simon was a very common name, and so whenever you're talking about Simon, you'd have to talk about, well, which Simon are you talking about? And so this was Simon the leper. Now, as most everybody agrees, this is Simon the former leper, because Jesus has been healing everyone, and it's hard to imagine Jesus staying at the house of someone with leprosy, and he hasn't healed him. So the leper is a reference to his former state, not his present state, also because Jewish law would have it that if you have leprosy, you can't have a feast at your house and invite everybody over. Your house is unclean. So he's been cleansed, his house is clean, and Jesus is there at Bethany relaxing. You know, perhaps Firth is kind of like Bethany, outside of the capital, a place where you have people who are, are more simple folk, where you can get away from the center of power and authority and, and just live life. And that's kind of what Bethany is like outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus has a place where he has friends, where he can be in their home and he can feel welcome and safe away from the hatred of those in Jerusalem. Now, who was this woman who is not mentioned by name here in Mark's account? Well, John does inform us her name. John was writing probably 30 years later, maybe even more after Mark wrote. Perhaps this woman had already passed away by the time John was writing his account, and he was like, well, I'll feel free to tell you a little bit more about this woman, that we were keeping her name private for maybe personal reasons. But her name was Mary. She was the sister of Lazarus. And if you've read the Gospel of John, you know that Mary loved Jesus a lot, and that she was very thankful for what Jesus had done for her family, because Jesus had recently raised her brother from the dead. And so this act of adoration, this act of love, seems to be a response from Mary because of the great power of Jesus and his great love for her and her family, among many other things, I'm sure, as well. And so Mary comes, 
And apparently she has some wealth because she is an owner of a flask of ointment, as it says there in verse 3, of pure nard. Nard was a plant that grew in India. We call it spike nard. And the spike nard plant from India, well, not only is it expensive in India, but if you're going to carry it from India to Israel, well, that increases the value quite a lot. So this was imported perfume, and it's no small amount of it either. The perfume that was in this flask would have been used very sparingly. It was pure. It was undiluted. And so therefore, just a little drop would normally do. And in a culture where you don't have showers and baths so readily available, perfume comes in handy, especially when you get a bunch of men together for dinner. But instead of just using a drop or two, which would be common on an occasion like this, she uses the whole bottle. She cracks it open and pours it, dumps it on his head. And it runs down his head, onto his clothes, onto his feet. And the disciples are just a little bit surprised. What was that about? Was that necessary? That's a little over the top. When the Bible says that it was very costly, we're told in verse 5 that it could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was what a man got for an honest day's work. And so 300 denarii is about a year's worth of work. That's a lot of money. You work for a whole year, and you can buy this expensive bottle of perfume from India. And so they're thinking, man, we didn't need the whole house to smell like spikenard. We didn't need to waste maybe $50,000 worth of perfume. And they were scolding her. They were telling her, why did you do that? That was a stupid thing to do. And before you judge them too harshly, don't kid yourself, you probably would have joined in with them. Right? Here at dinner, this woman goes nuts, pours perfume all over Jesus. $50,000? What are you doing? Now, if she had been living in the days of social media and she'd posted a picture of this online, she would have got a lot of dislikes. A lot of angry comments telling her what a stupid thing she did. But God doesn't look at it that way. Jesus sees it differently. And Jesus rebukes those who are rebuking her. He says, what are you doing? Leave her alone. They scolded her. That's a strong word also. I think the translation could be a little bit stronger here. It comes from a, a word that has the idea of your nostrils flaring with anger. And so she's getting a vehement rebuke from several men, and that would be quite intimidating, making her feel bad about what she'd done. She meant it as an act of adoration. She meant it as an act of love, giving the most precious thing that she had. And they were making her feel bad about it. And so Jesus steps in, and he says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. And then he goes on and explains... Now, what is really amazing about this passage is not just the extravagant love that the woman shows towards Christ, but that he accepts it as appropriate. Now, if somebody came and poured $50,000 worth of lotion on me, I'd say, don't do that. 
I don't deserve that kind of affection. I don't deserve that kind of love. Do something better with your precious ointment than trying to honor me. But Jesus accepts this worship. And that is as remarkable as the fact that she gave it. She recognized the supreme value and worth of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the most precious thing that she had couldn't even begin to show the proper honor and worship towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ said that that's right. That's who I am. I am the great I am. I am King of kings and Lord of lords. And if God the Father has created beautiful perfume in the world, what better use is there for that perfume than to anoint the body of God's Son before He is going to be buried? God didn't create that perfume just so rich people could go to parties. He created it to honor His Son. And that's a good use for it. The best use for it. And we're still talking about it today. Jesus' prophecy is remarkable. Think about it. He says in verse 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So he's predicting that the gospel is going to be told in the whole world. Don't think that Jesus was caught by surprise by his crucifixion. That he was thinking that he was going to just you know, set up his kingdom and turned out that he ended up getting killed. No. He knew from the beginning who it was that was going to betray him. He knew from the beginning why he had come to earth to be a sacrifice for sins. He knew that he was going to be raised from the dead and that the gospel of the kingdom was going to be proclaimed among all the nations. In fact, he just said it in the previous section also in chapter 13. He said, first, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Not only does he know that, but he knows at this moment that the gospel of Mark is going to include this account. And that the Gospel of Matthew is going to include this account. And the Gospel of John is going to include this account. And that all throughout the world, wherever the Gospels are read, wherever they are preached, her act of love, her act of devotion is going to be remembered. And Jesus' prophecy is being fulfilled in Firth, Nebraska, today. We're remembering what she did. We're not just remembering Judas and his betrayal. We're not just remembering the chief priests and their abuse of power but remembering love, thankfulness, devotion, worship. God writes that down in his book too. He doesn't forget any of that. God will honor those who honor him. And those who honor his son Jesus Christ honor God. Now, notice what Jesus also says that in verse 8. She has done what she could. Apparently she had some wealth. She wouldn't have owned this ointment if she didn't have some money. She did what she could. She gave what she had to give. This reminds me of Jesus' commendation of the widow who just had two pennies. And she gave those to the temple. She did what she could. And now this woman, who can do more from a human perspective, does what she does. She gives everything she has out of love and devotion towards God. She did what she could, and God had ordained her to do this, whether she knew what she was doing or not. And what I mean is, we don't know if she intentionally was anointing his body for burial. Maybe she was picking up on what Jesus Christ had been laying down, and she knew that Christ was about to die, and she knew that he was going to be crucified, and so this was her act of love towards him, knowing that he was about to be handed over, and that she wouldn't have a chance to anoint him for burial after that. Maybe that's what she was thinking. Or maybe she didn't even think about all that and she was just showing her love and devotion to Jesus 
because of all that he had done for her already. But whatever the case, God intended it as an anointing for the body of his son beforehand for burial. Just as God ordained that the Magi would come and visit the Lord Jesus Christ as a baby so that his parents would have funds to be able to flee from the wrath of Herod and be able to afford their trip down to Egypt so that there would be people who would be there to honor his son at his birth when most people did not pay any attention, the gifts of gold and the gift of frankincense and myrrh, beautiful things that God created, he gave to his son to show his love for his son. And so, also, God had Joseph of Arimathea take the body of the Lord Jesus Christ so it wasn't thrown into the trench with all the other executed prisoners but he was buried like a rich man because God wanted to honor his son even after he had been crucified. There's no greater dishonor than crucifixion, but God is honoring him before and after by people doing what they can. God doesn't expect you to do what you can't. He expects you to do what you can. Whatever he has given you, that's what you use to honor him. That's what you use to serve him. And God doesn't judge you based upon how much you have. He judges you based upon what you do with what you have. Better the half pint that is full than the gallon jug that is half full of itself. Now, there's a lot that we can conclude from this account. There's a lot of application, and we've already done some. The first is very obvious. We want to contrast and compare the value that the woman put on Christ versus the value that the chief priest and Judas placed upon Christ. We are told that the chief priest promised to give him money, and in Matthew's gospel we're told that it was 30 shekels of silver. Now 30 pieces of silver, by whatever estimate I was able to come across this week, is a few hundred dollars. So they were willing to pay a few hundred dollars for this information for Judas, and Judas was willing to sell the Lord Jesus Christ into their hands for a few hundred dollars. Now that 30 pieces of shekel is not only significant because of how small a number it is, but it's also significant because that is exactly the price that is in God's law in the book of Exodus for a slave. God set the price of a slave in the Old Testament law at 30 shekels of silver. So that's what they valued him at. There's another passage in the Old Testament that's relevant to this 30 shekels of silver, and that's in Zechariah chapter 11. In Zechariah chapter 11, the prophet, speaking for God, goes and asks the people to pay him his wages for having spoken the truth to them. And they weighed out for him 30 shekels of silver. And that was an insult to God, how little they valued the prophet that was among them. And God talked about that princely sum in irony by which I was valued by them, that magnificent 30 shekels of silver. You see, the truest love is shown by those who are willing to spend and be expended for your soul. And hatred is shown by those who will sell you for 30 shekels of silver. You have this contrast between the inestimable worth that the woman recognized in Jesus versus the near worthlessness that his enemies saw in him. And the woman, she teaches us about how to value Christ. I think so much of Christianity is still wrong on this. Yes, we talk about how valuable Christ is, how immeasurable his worth is, but we don't know it. 
We don't act like it. What do I mean by that? If we understood the infinite value of God and Christ, I don't think we would complain about God sending sinners to hell or Israel destroying the Canaanites in the Old Testament. If we understood the infinite value of God, we would never take sin lightly. We would recognize the value of the one that we are sinning against and the gravity of sinning against such an infinite person. We wouldn't compromise God's standards in order to make people feel better about themselves if we understood the worth of God. In fact, I think every problem that the church has would be solved if we just understood in our hearts and in our minds the incomparable value of Jesus Christ. In fact, I might go so far as to say that the whole Bible, the purpose of the Bible is to teach you to value God and his son Jesus Christ, to honor him, to worship him, to love him the way that he should be honored and worshiped and loved. There's a lot of things that we honor. There's a lot of things that we value. God is not just another thing. He's not even just the biggest thing. He is the only thing. Until we have that heart that just out of spontaneous love for God gives him what is most precious and most valuable, we don't really know God as we should. There is no such thing as too much love for God. You know, the world will say, it's okay to be religious, just don't go too far with it. Go too far with it. Go as far as this woman. If you're not being rebuked for how much you love God, you're probably not loving God enough. If people don't look at your life and say, you're a fanatic, you need to take it easy, then you probably are not yet understanding who it is that you're serving. Let's show this kind of love towards God and his Christ. Secondly, let's not rebuke people for doing good. There's enough evil in the world to scold. We don't have to scold good deeds. Say, well, that wasn't good enough. You could have done something better. Let people love and serve God. And when they're loving and serving God, don't criticize them for not doing it good enough or the way that you would do it. You've heard it said before, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, here's the best deed that God honors. He puts into his word. He writes it down for all time. And she was scolded for it. Be careful. Look at verse 4 once again. Verse 4 says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? Be careful about what you say to yourself. Mistrust your indignation. When you start to get offended, when you start to get upset, stop and say, What am I upset about? Is God upset about this? Is Jesus upset about this? Don't trust your indignation. We are told that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. You know, the word for indignation there is the same word that was used when James and John asked for the right hand and the left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory and the other disciples became indignant. They were angry with them for that. Why were they indignant? Well, I wanted that place. How dare you try to step in front of me in line? So much of our indignation is, I've been disrespected. 
Well, who cares if you've been disrespected? You deserve to be in hell. You should care about God being disrespected. And here, God was being respected and honored in the most glorious way. And they were indignant. Don't rebuke people for doing good. Also, as we've highlighted, give. Give according to what you have. And I want to add to that, give to the poor. When it says there, notice Jesus says, the poor you always have with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. Jesus is not putting down giving to the poor here. Don't get that idea that he's saying, well, giving to the poor is not really important. You know, you should just give to the church or whatever. No, he's not saying that. The Old Testament law is very clear that the people of Israel had a responsibility to the poor. And when Jesus says, the poor you always have with you, he's actually referencing a passage from the law where in Deuteronomy 15.11, God said, There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Now, when God says there will never cease to be poor in the land, that gives you a realistic expectation about the war on poverty. Okay? The war on poverty is not going to eliminate poverty. If it did, then they would prove God's word to be false. The poor you always have with you. There's always going to be poor. And we're always going to have the responsibility to help the poor. And when I tell you give to the poor, I don't mean give indiscriminately to the poor. I mean give in a way that's actually going to help the poor. You have to get to know them. You have to know what their needs are. You have to know whether or not giving them money is going to help them or whether it's going to just make them more dependent. There's a lot that goes into helping the poor and you can't just write a check to the local charity. You can't outsource your giving to the poor to the government. You have to care for the poor. So you have to know some people in your community. You have to build relationships in your neighborhood. You have to build relationships in the church. You can't help somebody if you don't know them. And the government does a terrible job of helping the poor because they don't know them. There's surely some good workers in the social network who have good intentions. And they're trying their best. But that's not the way God ordained the help of the poor. It's through neighborhood, through personal interaction. That's where true help can be found. Well, there's a lot else that is here. Let me close with this one. Expect betrayal, but don't let it harden your heart. Don't get to the point where you don't trust anyone because you've been betrayed. That's not the answer. That leads only to isolation and loneliness. But instead, we need to be building a community where we trust one another. Even if we've been betrayed, even if we've been hurt, we just keep on laying ourselves out there and trusting God. One of the things that is really important about this that I want to bring up is is the subject of gossip. Gossip doesn't get preached against enough. How can people trust a community, a family, if we gossip? If you can't go to a brother or a sister in church and expect to be able to talk to them about real problems in your heart and in your life and in your marriage and in your family without them telling everyone else in the church, then you can't have a community where we minister to one another. Every time you gossip, you undermine community. 
And you make a culture where people keep to themselves their problems and won't talk about it until it's too late and nothing can be done. Think about the cost of the sin. It looks small, it looks harmless, but it does great damage. That's the way sin always is. So, don't let betrayal harden your heart, causing you not to trust anyone, not talking with anyone about what's going on in your heart and in your life and where your problems are. Don't be isolated. Don't be lonely. Let's build a community where we can help each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved Judas to the end, who was stabbed in the back. But it was all in your plan. It was all for good. And through that betrayal, Christ died as the sacrifice for sins and brought everlasting salvation to countless people throughout the world. And so, Lord God, may we trust you that if you bring hardship into our life, if you bring difficulty, if we are even betrayed by our children or our parents, our closest friend, Lord, that that we would not harden our hearts and isolate ourselves and seek protection in the flesh, but that we would continue to trust in you, continue to love those around us with an open hand and an open heart. Father, create here in First Community Church the type of place where we can help each other with poverty, with sin, with all that we deal with, so that we can be a light that is shining in a dark place, showing the world the beauty of your plan and the power of your salvation. Lord, let us not just talk about these things, but let us be doers of your word, following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ by the power that he has given to us through his resurrection. For our good and for your glory, amen.